0: So I hope you're ready for that. Um, here we go. We're looking at God's big picture. We've been doing this across our group of churches. I was in Bister last week uh, speaking on this same thing, and next week we'll be in Blackbird Lees. Uh, so we've been going through the story of the Bible. You can divide it up into different chapters in different ways, if you like. We're following a division into eight different chapters, and this is chapter five. We've looked at the story of creation. The story of the fall when sin entered into that good creation. We've looked at the promises first given to Abraham of uh, God choosing to bless him, that he would be a blessing to many. And last week, I wasn't here, but uh, Jeremy spoke about the nation of Israel, another season in the story of the scriptures. And. this week, we're looking at the prophetic books of the Old Testament. There are four of these books that are called the major prophets. That's not because they're any more important or what they say is any more significant than the other prophets. It's just that they wrote longer books. So there's four that are like that, and they are Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel for major prophets. There's more minor prophets. There's 12 minor prophets, again, no less important, no less significant, but the books they wrote were shorter, and they get called the minor prophets. So we have Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Now, I've said that we're in another chapter of the story this morning. But actually, these books overlap with the last chapter. And I'm just going to take a moment to show how that happens. This is a timeline. We we, um, have upgraded the tech this week. So there's a few little teething things going on there. But um, it's better. It's just settling in, getting its feet under the table as it were to bless us all. So a uh, timeline of the old testament prophets starting 1000 years before Christ. There was a time then it was the time of king Saul and then of Solomon and uh, of David and Solomon when there was one nation of Israel. That one nation however didn't last forever because after Solomon the kingdom broke into two and there was a northern part which retained the name of Israel, and a southern part, which was smaller, which took the name of one of the tribes of Israel, that is Judah. And you can see that those bars there are for different uh, durations of time because both of those kingdoms came to a crunch at different points in history. For Israel in the north, it was in 722 but uh, BC years before Christ, that they fell to a conquering power, the Assyrian Empire, and they were led into exile. For them, their exile was, if you like, a forced multiculturalism, because the Assyrians' policy for conquered nations was that they would take chunks of the people from the nation that they had conquered and would just spread them out all over their empire and then take, do the same with every other place that they also conquered. And so they took people from all other different places and settled them in this northern kingdom of Israel. So whether people liked it or not, they found themselves in a profoundly multicultural situation, disrupted from what they'd known before. The fall of Jerusalem was different because Sometime later, about 150 years later, the, uh, the city of Jerusalem, the capital of Judah, also fell to a conquering army. But that was to the Babylonians, and they had a different policy in which they took the people, the leaders especially of the people, en masse to their capital in Babylon, and there basically collected them all up from all the different places that they'd conquered in one city, in Babylon, and left just a remnant of the people in Judah. So that's what happened in the north and in the south. The northern nation was scattered and diluted. The southern nation went into this exile in Babylon, but because they went on block, it was possible for them also to start coming back as a unit. And that's what began to happen. They began to return after 70 years in exile. They began to return, but they only, only some of them ever returned. And when they returned, they weren't able to restore Judah to the glories that it had known before. In fact, When the nations of Israel and Judah were restored, if you like, in this way, there were actually far more Jews living scattered throughout the empire, both the old Assyrian empire and the Babylonian empire, than ever made their way back to Jerusalem. These exiles made the Jews a dispersed people with a weaker base than than they'd ever known before. In fact, the people living in Jerusalem, when they needed more teaching in order to understand what it really meant to be Jewish, they had to send to Babylon. Or rather, someone was sent from Babylon to them in order to give them the teaching that they just no longer had in their own locality. So, anyway, I, that was last, the, the back end of last week looking at Israel. But the, the stories of the, the books of the prophets overlap with this part of the story they don't just start the next bit they overlap with it and we really need the books of the prophets to make sense of this because I don't know what you make of that history of that story for me it feels a little bit like watching the winter olympics when you get sports like curling where you desperately need a commentator Because really, you haven't got a clue what's going on. It looks purposeful. It looks like some people are enjoying themselves. It looks like someone's clearly winning, and the crowd seems to know what's going on, but you haven't got a clue what the rules are and what's happening. We sometimes need uh, authoritative commentators to make sense for us of the events that are going on. And that's what we have. These complex events of... Several centuries of the nation of Israel are spoken about by the prophets. Now, let's see how the different prophets map on. I'm sorry, if you're on this side, I hope you can see. It'll it'll come back in a bit because Andrew's on to it. So, good things follow. No pressure. Uh, The four major prophets, they are found in the... Old Testament as we have it, in the order that they come in history. So we have Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. They come at those different points in the story and speak to the people of their time. Amongst the minor prophets, there are three of the minor prophets where it's more difficult to know when they spoke. Uh, There are, of course, uh, some... People speculating about quite when they were, but there are these three, Joel, Obadiah, and Jonah, where it's just that bit harder to know quite when they came. So I've just bracketed them off to one side. But the other nine we also find in the Bible in the order in which they spoke in history. So we have Amos, Hosea, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. That's the order they come in the Bible, and that's roughly the time that they spoke in history. So there we are. This is what we're talking about this morning. All of these books of the Bible, the prophets speaking God's word to give his commentary on events. Some pretty big and confusing events. So what did they have to say? Well, actually, they said lots of different things. For example, Hosea, his book speaks all about human unfaithfulness, but God's faithfulness. Uh, Amos drew attention to social injustices and said, your worship's useless if you're oppressive. Obadiah, it's a short little book, full of curses. Obadiah, speaking God's word, cursed a nation who had cursed Israel. Micah spoke instead of the doom of Israel, but also of their hope. Zechariah, one of my favorite books of the Bible, is full of crazy visions of both hope and judgment Malachi the last book of the Old Testament calls people to repent whilst also speaking of God's faithfulness so there's all of these different things that are said at different times different visions and dreams that the prophets received from God and were written down for our our benefit now i'm not quite sure why but i think it's a widespread idea that the prophets were Original thinkers. They were the geniuses, the artists, the creative types of their day. They were original thinkers. But that's not quite how it reads. Rather, the truth is that the prophets were sticklers for tradition. Because running right through all of these prophetic books are two strands with an ancient history two strands, two messages that went back well beyond the thousand years BC and were part of the ancient tradition of the people of Israel. One of them was a warning to repent. And another was an assurance of God's love, a warning to repent and an assurance of God's love. So those were two things that were in Israel's history all the way back to Moses and beyond. Not new thoughts, but rather the prophets called to the people of God, saying, this is what God has long said. Are we listening? Are we paying attention to what he has long said to us? So let's look at those two things in turn. Here's the first one less detail to have to look at now. So everybody can see this, hopefully. The first thing is this warning to repent. Let me read to you what it says in that long-held tradition that had been around for centuries already, the law of Moses. This is in Deuteronomy chapter 28, and I'm going to jump through it in steps. So you might struggle to follow me, but I promise it's all there. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, this is what it says. If you do not obey the Lord your God and don't carefully follow all his commands and decrees, all of these curses will come upon you and overtake you. I'm not going to read all of the curses, but here's a few. Where will you be cursed? You will be cursed in the city and you'll be cursed in the country. It's kind of everywhere. The Lord will plague you with diseases. The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. The sights you see will drive you mad. The worst of all the curses that's listed in this law of Moses is actually the, the, the curse of exile. That's, that's the worst it gets Worse than plague and diseases and defeat, it says, You will be uprooted from the land, and then the Lord will scatter you among all nations from one end of the earth to the other. It's the tradition, the long standing word of God, that disobedience would lead to cursing. And so the prophets warned people. Uh, Especially when the people were complacent or self-righteous, the prophets reminded them of the promised curses for the disobedient. So, for example, Amos, one of the earlier prophets, speaking in the northern kingdom in the 8th century BC, said, you, you have lifted up the shrine of your king, the pedestal of your idols, which you made for yourselves. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Damascus. Amos reminding the northern kingdom citizens of the promise of God, that though spoken centuries before, it applied to them. Later on, when the northern kingdom had been taken into exile by the Assyrians, the southern kingdom, Judah, felt secure. They felt complacent and self-righteous. They thought that the northern kingdom had been dealt with and that they remained was a sign of their inherent goodness. And to them, Micah said, Samaria's plague is incurable. Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom. Samaria's plague is incurable. It has spread to Judah. It has reached the very gate of my people, even to Jerusalem itself. And so... I will bring a conqueror against you. Warning to repent, turn around and change, spoken again. And then at the time of the exile, this is what Ezekiel said, repent, turn away from all your offenses, then sin won't be your downfall. Rid yourselves of all the offenses you've committed and get a new heart, and a new spirit. Why will you die, O people of Israel? For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent and live. And then again, after the exile, when the people have come back in their dribs and drabs and started to rebuild, Zechariah proclaimed the word of the Lord to them the same message. Surely the day is coming, it will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble, and the day that is coming will set them on fire. So there it is, a consistent message over centuries of warning, a warning to repent at all times, at all times. The prophets called the people to repent, to turn around, to avoid danger. Of course, for us today, the danger is not exile. We are not faced with the threat of being taken to have to go and live in France or something. Some other kind of tragedy that might befall us. Sorry, Ruth. No, for us, if we read the New Testament, the warning to repent is based on the threat of hell. Sorry? Worse than France. So, these words of the prophets are relevant to us. This consistent warning to repent has meaning for us today. It matters whether or not we repent, whether we turn to the living God. It's one strand that came through. Here's another strand, or oh, those are the verses, by the way. Here's another strand, this assurance of God's love. Because whilst the prophets spoke of judgment to complacent people, when the people of God were in despair, the prophets spoke of, of better days to come, if only the people would return to the Lord. And this too was in the teaching of Moses. It's in Deuteronomy 30, right at the beginning. Moses said, when all these blessings and curses I've set before you come on you, and when you take them to heart, wherever the Lord your God disperses you among the nations. When the worst of it's happened, when you've been exiled, when the worst of it's happened, when you and your children... Return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and with all your soul, according to everything I command you today. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where he scattered you. It's a promise of better days to come. There is a problem there, though, isn't there? Because this promise, according to the law of Moses, is based on... Obeying God with all your heart and soul, according to everything I command you today. And the problem is that that never happened. The problem is that in Moses' day, even when he was up the mountain getting the Ten Commandments, he came down to find a golden calf that they'd set up as an idol. And Moses prophesied in this, these latter chapters of Deuteronomy 30, he said, I'm giving you this law, but you know what? You are going to disobey it constantly. Well, you know, you've mucked about whilst I'm here. When I'm gone, it's going to be worse. They disobeyed in Moses' day. They disobeyed consistently in the time of judges and only called out to God when they were in a pickle. When they had kings, the same thing happened. Consistently disobedient. There's occasional glimmers of obedience. And even they seem not to be with all your heart and all your soul. Nor even in the exile. In the time of the exile, what the prophets had to say to the people was, you're listening to false prophets who speak too much comfort to you. You need to learn to change. You're not changing. And even after the exile, the last few books of the Old Testament that we have are saying the same thing to the people then. At no point, at no point in their story Were the people of Israel consistently devoted to the Lord? Never happened. And yet, the prophets proclaimed this confident hope that better days were coming. So how does that work? How could they be sticklers for tradition and hold on to the law of Moses and yet promise something better than the law of Moses allowed? Well, praise God, it's because the law of Moses wasn't the only tradition that the prophets sustained. Just as we've been doing in this series of the big picture with creation and fall and Abraham and Moses and Israel have finally got to the prophets, the prophets themselves looked back in the story, not just as far as Moses but they looked back beyond Moses to the person of Abraham. They saw what C.S. Lewis might describe as being like a deeper magic. Those of you who are familiar with the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe know that little idea. That it there's something deeper that goes further than many people understand. And that's what the prophets were able to see in the story of Abraham. Because back before the law of Moses, back before the covenant with Moses, there was another covenant. It was one made with Abraham. And Abraham was a man with significant failings, but to whom God simply spoke, saying, I am choosing you. And as Dave explained to us so clearly when we kicked off this series six weeks or so ago... He said to him, I will be your God. God made a choice regarding Abraham. I will be your God. Different kind of covenant altogether. It didn't depend on Abraham being good. In fact, whilst Abraham had some good qualities, several times over he passed his wife off as his sister to go and live in someone else's harem and then had the cheek to justify himself afterwards. This is it's not a man of purity and holiness, you know, through and through. It wasn't because he was the holiest man that God chose him. God simply said, You, I will be your God. And so the prophets reminded the Jewish people that they were not only children of Israel, that is, of Jacob and inheritors of the law of Moses, they were also children of Abraham. And so they could be sure. Of God's love. That's why I've put up a picture of a big old anchor holding something much bigger than itself. Because and the scriptures speak elsewhere of God's love for us being steadfast. It's an anchor for us. We can be assured of God's love, though there is a warning to repent. The assurance of God's love is is a deeper magic. It's an older truth. It's something that holds us fast at all times. And that's something that the prophets say repeatedly. It's spoken beautifully by Hosea. As I said, what he had to say was, though you are faithless, God will be faithful. And in chapter 11 of his book, these words of God are written for us. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. Yet it was I, the Lord, who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms. But they didn't realize. And it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them, I was like one who lifts a little... Child to the cheek, and I bent down to feed them. Yet my people are determined to turn from me. But how can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? All my compassion is aroused. It's a strand that comes, you find it all different places in the Old Testament prophetic books. Though the warnings of danger are very real, the promise of God's faithfulness is equally real. And that means it's never too late to turn back to him. Jesus made it beautifully clear for us in the parable of the prodigal son, which, as many people have observed, might better be called the parable of the faithful father. So, The remarkable thing is not that someone who is destitute looks for a better way forward in life, that the prodigal son would try to come home. The remarkable thing is the father. Jesus makes it abundantly clear that God is like a father who receives home a son who doesn't deserve to come home because he is faithful. His love is something of which we can be assured. So there's a warning to repent, And there is an assurance of God's love. And then, in addition to those two ancient strands of God's word, there is something new. The prophets are not only sticklers for tradition, but they do see something new coming. As well as reminding the people of Israel about the covenant with Moses and God's relationship with Abraham and showing how those things made sense of these events over centuries, pretty much all of the Old Testament prophets had glimpses, they had revelations of something that was still to come in their future. Of course, it's now in our past, but they saw it before it was to come. Uh, and the newness was as unpredictable as like a blossom forming on a, on a twig, on a branch. You can't look at the twig and from its qualities tell quite what the blossom is going to look like. Uh, When it comes out, it's something beyond what you might have expected. And what the prophets saw was that they didn't see the whole blossom. They didn't see everything that would unfold, but they began to see the buds. They began to draw attention to the fact that something new was coming. So here's a few of those things. Jeremiah spoke of a new covenant. Whereas the prophets had referred back to the covenant with Moses and the covenant with Abraham and found meaning for life in those covenants, made sense of life in the light of those covenants, Jeremiah saw there's going to be something new. We're not going to have to keep looking back to that forever. But God's going to do a new deal, a new covenant. So Jeremiah 31 says, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. It's an amazing promise, isn't it? The answer that it wasn't going to be about how we behave. If only we behave well enough, then God will bless us. Problem is, our hearts always lead us astray. And the word comes through the problem saying God's going to deal with that. It doesn't just command us to get a new heart, but says, I will give you a new heart. Same thing comes out in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26, very straightforwardly put, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. That's a good promise. I don't know about you, but sometimes I realize I'm not living in the fullness of that promise yet. Realize that there is some stoniness in me. There is some hardness in me there are some points in my life believe it or not when God speaks clearly and I know I ought to repent that is to change my mind and I decide not to shock horror none of you are holier than me so it's all right true fact We all have that stoniness, don't we? That resistance in us. So that even when I was reading about repenting and the warning to repent, there were some fairly mixed things going off in us. There's a little leap of faith that goes on. Oh, life could be better. (laughs) I could be free of some stuff. There was spoken about, we've sung about that already this morning. The chains could come off. And then there's the stoniness you know what, maybe not. Just carry on, really. It's not very exciting, this stoniness. It's just kind of solid and resistant to change. And it's an obstacle. And it's a stumbling block. That's what the stoniness of our hearts is, is like. And Ezekiel, he's able to look back from the time of exile, over all of Israel's history in the land of Canaan, and sees the problem that the people have never had, worship from all of their hearts, and never obeyed everything with all of their soul. And he prophesies, I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, something sensitive and responsive. I wonder, does anybody want that? I mean, I want that. Yeah, good. We need that. It's an act of God, who comes by his spirit to actually do it. It's not just an idea in which we say to ourselves, every time I have a stony thought, I'll put it away. And every time I have a kind of sensitive thought, I'll hang on to it. It's not just something we do. It's something that God comes to do. That's why in our worship this morning, it was so helpful for different people to remind us that we're in God's presence, he's here. If he's not here and active, then this is not encouraging but pretty depressing stuff because I can't change my stoniness. But God can. And uh, I can see nods from people who've experienced that change. Some people are going, I wonder what that would feel like because you've not yet had that sort of experience, but for those who, would, who have been born again, or would, whichever language that you want to pick from the scriptures that describes this thing of being made anew in Christ, a new creation in him, you 've experienced that. you 've known the one kind of inner life changed for another. But maybe it's been a while since that's been refreshed. And this morning, God wants to refresh that in us. Um, We've already commented, I think, on some things that we're doing differently that are new. We have new curtains, some new timings. We have one new high-density screen working well, and another one that is going to be blessed by the Lord's presence in weeks to come. And... Function properly. Um, So we're doing those, but you know, the newness that we really need is an internal one, isn't it? I want a new heart. I want a heart that's not resistant to the Lord. I want a heart that's not weighed down. And I know that many of us feel the same way. Great thing is, it's promised. I will remove your heart of stone. I will. And I will give you a heart of flesh. You know what? That's not the half of it with this whole new thing because that's about us as individuals. But there's something about the nations here. Whereas the earlier covenants had been to specific people and their descendants, uh, the prophets began to see another aspect of this newness that it would be for all nations. Or we might say for all people. And I love the way that it comes in Isaiah chapter 49. Uh, God's word is, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel. It is too small a thing to restore the tribes of, Israel, uh, of Jacob and bring back Israel. That's too little. God's the God of the whole earth, of all people everywhere and so speaking of his servant he says I will make you a light for the Gentiles that is a light for all nations that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth so if what I just said about the stoniness you felt in any way on the outside of that promise you don't need to because this new thing that God would do, this new covenant, is for everybody. There's no one who is outside of it. Whatever, and in speaking that, God knew the shocking behavior and depravity of some people on the face of the earth and speaks this word. This new thing is for everybody. It deals with whatever shame we may have, whatever we feel is fixed and impossible to change in our lives, and it extends to everybody. And then there's this wonderful thing that's prophesied in Zechariah, that God himself will be king. I could go off on one about the European Union here now. I must resist. But whereas the people in the story of the nation of Israel had a variety of kinds of rulership that had judges and Good kings and bad kings, and the prophets had weighed in, and then there'd been foreign armies and all the rest of it. Zechariah 14, verse 9 says, The Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day, there will be one Lord, and his name, the only name. Tom Wright describes the ministry of Jesus as being the time when God became king. Of course, God had always been king, but he Came and exercised that, and that's what we're getting to next week. Next week, hooray! I said this week's a bit of a turning point. I think it may have been a little bit glum last week with Israel. I'm sure there were good points, but Jeremy himself said that you know there's quite a you know there's a certain glumness to looking at the story he preached last week. So I'm not you know having a go at him. It's there's a certain glumness to the part of the story that is it not all quite working. We've looked at the end of that, and there's this pointer beyond. And next week we get to Jesus. It's good, isn't it? I wish I were here. I'm going to be on Blackbird Lee, still in the prophets. But I trust you have a great time without me. But next, the next part of the story is that God comes and is present amongst his people, active as their sovereign, as our king. Okay, there's quite a lot there, isn't there? 16 books of the Bible and pointing into the New Testament to come. So here we are, there's a warning to repent, there is an assurance of God's love, and there is a promise of something new. How can we respond to those truths from the prophetic books of the Old Testament? I'd like to suggest we do it this way. The assurance of God's love is a bedrock. The assurance of God's love is what makes it possible for us to respond The two responses that I'm going to invite are, one, a response to the call to repent, which means whichever thing we need to change our mind and set out in a different direction, whatever it is that we need to leave behind. And the second thing is this promise of something new. We've got some bits of paper. Can we start distributing those? Oh, great. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, please do. Let's get, let's get things set up. We've got some bits of paper, two different colored bits of paper. And we're going to have a few minutes now in which you can write on those different colored pieces of paper, if you wish, something to leave behind. Something that you know God is saying, enough already. And can turn away from that. And then when you've written that down, we're going to have a bin which is going to come here into which you can place the thing that you... Le- don't worry, I am not going to take all these out and read them later. <laughs> Seriously, I've got better things to do. Um, nor is anyone else going to do that. We will uh, either burn them or shred them. To, so that don't worry about other people reading of what you write. But there's opportunity here on both sides to, write, to put in the thing that you are letting go of, and then on the other piece of paper that you'll have you can write down what it is that you feel, you can see God wants to, to give you the something new that, is, that faith is starting to rise for. And maybe those two things are like two sides of the same coin. So there might be, for example, something about giving up fear and taking forward courage. There will be two sides of the same coin. There might be really, really different things about perhaps letting go of self-centeredness and, and then, say, stepping out with courage. I don't know, whatever God is saying to you. So what we're going to do now is have a few moments of quiet, um, and then we're going to need to move to get these different bits of paper. In case I haven't been clear enough, it's written on the bits of paper on the floor over here uh, what to do. If you would rather simply have somebody pray with you, Could you not go to that side or that side, but come to the front here, and we'll pray for you, for whatever it may be, that you just need someone to stand with you, see something shift by the power of God, because he's here, and he's the one that changes our hearts. Okay, anything else?